Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. Today, Karen continues her six-interview series on attachment and expressive arts therapies. She welcomes her sixth and final guest, Eliana Gill, to the show to discuss the use of symbolism and metaphors in attachment-based therapy. Part two will be released on March 29th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And we are about to embark on our final interview in the series that we have had going on with the podcast, which has been the use of expressive arts therapies in attachment-based work. And for this grand finale, I have a very special interview lined up with Eliana Gill. So most of our listeners are going to be familiar with Dr. Gill, but just to give a little bit of background, she has done so much. Dr. Gill was born in Ecuador and Spanish is her first language, but her family moved to the United States when she was 14. Uh, She originally moved to DC, then San Francisco. She's then moved back to the coast again. In the meantime, she just continued her education in so many different ways. She does have her doctorate degree in marriage and family therapy. And I mean, I could take the whole podcast with talking about all the different kinds of training and expertise that Dr. Gill has. She's a writer, a therapist, a lecturer. She has held many leadership positions in terms of work in child abuse prevention, in her involvement with the Association of Play Therapy. And she also has written a number of books. Again, you know, too many to list here just in this introduction, but some of my favorite Favorite books by Dr. Gill are Helping Abused and Traumatized Children, Play and Family Therapy, and Post-Traumatic Play in Children. One of her recent endeavors that well, somewhat recent, I, I guess. Um, it's It's been around, I believe, since 2013, is the Gill Institute that she founded in Fairfax, Virginia. This is a place that provides therapy, but she also developed a an additional training component called the Starbright Training Institute, for child and family therapy. So there in Virginia, um, I've had the uh, honor of actually teaching a TheraPlay course there. So I have visited that wonderful, magical place that she has founded, um, the Gill Institute and Starbright, Starbright Training. So Dr. Gill will be coming right up. What we're going to be talking about is the use of symbolism and metaphor in attachment-based work. So hang on just a minute and she will be here. 
Well, hello, Dr. Gill, and thank you for giving us some of your precious time again here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. <laughs> yes. So you are actually finishing out this interview. We'll be finishing out a series on the use of expressive arts therapies in attachment-based work. But in our interview, I almost wanted to take a step back now to more of a macro level, just the use of metaphor and symbolism, you know, in this work. And one of the first things that I was noticing as I prepared for this interview was as I researched using metaphor and symbolism in therapy, of course, lots of things comes up, come up union and, and things like that. But what struck me was so different. And I want your response to this was a lot of what I read was about therapists coming up with metaphors for clients. And that's not what I was thinking. You know, I was thinking about how our clients, for example, maybe a child in Santray uses the metaphor to express themselves. So I think the first thing I wanted to, to talk with you about is this use of metaphor, like bi-directional, <laughs> like, because when I was seeing so much, not that I was unaware that therapists might say something in metaphor in a session, but I was more thinking about it coming from the client. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's great that you use that term bi-directional because you're right in the literature. Well, let me go back to Milton Erickson. And I think he was really the, the person that most brought this concept of using metaphors therapeutically to light. Yes. And he was amazing. I mean, sometimes you, you just have individuals who are capable of doing these really creative things and they do it naturally and easily. Yes. And as you listen to Milton Erickson's work, or as you read it, um, you sit there and you go, wow, what a great idea. And of course, the next part is that would have never occurred to me. Um, he was just kind of a master at the use of language and metaphor to kind of bypass the defenses of the client so that they could hear things that if you said it in a real direct way, they couldn't hear. So I was fascinated by that. But at the same time, what you said is very true, and that is I'm used to receiving metaphors from clients as they both speak in metaphor language yes. or as they use symbols to represent very big thoughts and concepts and feelings. But it's a safer thing to put the metaphor down or the symbol down than it would be to possibly explain yourself in ways that maybe you don't even understand quite fully. So yeah. I do think that on both sides, either the therapist taking too much of the lead all the time with the metaphors and not listening to the client's metaphors and or um, the child who gives you a metaphor and the clinician lets it rest. I think both of those things can become problematic. And so I'm constantly thinking of ways to utilize that which is coming from the clients. You know, if a client says to me, I was working with an adult once, uh, a dad of a, a kid that I'd worked with who had been abused, and he came back to see me. And I remember him sitting there and saying, I feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. And I thought, wow, what an incredible metaphor. Now I can either 
talk with him about that, or I can make it concrete. I can help him actually visualize his metaphor to see what it it ignites in him. And so that's what I did. I said, you know, Doug, that's a, that's a really powerful metaphor. So I'd like you to come with me and pick something that represents you. And he picked this business guy with a briefcase and a telephone, and that was him. And then we literally in a little plastic container made um, quicksand out of this adobe sand. And so you pour some water and it gets really to look like and feel like quicksand. And so I asked him to place the little figure he chose for himself in there. And then we just took a look at it together. And I'll tell you, something started moving inside him as he looked at this image of that which he now had labeled self in this quicksand. And literally the figure was moving down. And so he was really struck by that. And suddenly something happened in him and he started mobilizing himself and he got all these other objects and put them in the tray. And he brought a helicopter with a with a little uh, stretcher that was lowered um, down. And he did all this amazing stuff in silence. And just as one of the things that happened was he put he finally lowered that stretcher put the little man in the quicksand on the stretcher and then pulled it up uh, with a little lever, put it in the helicopter. And then as if he was maybe the eight-year-old son that I worked with, he took it and moved it around the room going like, like a helicopter sound. And he landed it on the hospital and took him off. And then he, he very, very gently uh, nurtured it. He he put water on it. He took the sand off it. He patted it dry. And then he basically put it in a comfortable chair. That whole process to him was incredibly important because it was his metaphor. And he yes. worked with that metaphor and it was concrete and he could look at it and have a response to it. And that propelled him to do this other work. And the long and the short of it is he said very little to me other than, you know, I just felt that if when I was looking at it, I said, what was that like for you? What was it like to look at that man in the quicksand? And he said, I just knew that if I didn't do anything, he was going to sink. And I would just sink because if you don't do anything, you just sink. And that's what had propelled him to move that reflection that he needed to do something or he was going to keep sinking. It was a wonderful session. And and I didn't see him for a while after that. He canceled a couple of appointments and then came back to tell me that he had quit his job and that he had bought an RV and he and his wife had decided to go on these trips. And that's why he hadn't been around so much. And he was now starting a new venture. So something got released um, in the process of that metaphor. And that's the kind of thing I'm always looking for is opportunity to deepen understanding about this metaphor that sometimes is just like for him, it was a throwaway line. It was like, yeah, I feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. But if you stop and really allow him to interact with that metaphor, then he gets a lot deeper into his own unconscious and he can actually activate himself in a different way. 
So that's kind of an example of, of metaphors. And I'll give you one more and then we can go on with the conversation. But I was thinking about this as I was preparing in my mind to talk about metaphor was um, a child I was working with who was 14 and uh, having a very conflictual relationship with her mother with a lot of history of mother leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back. And when I asked her to find a symbol that would show the relationship between herself and her mother. It was fascinating because she chose these hands that were holding each other. And I asked her a little bit about the hands and she said, that just sums it all up. My mom always lets go of me too quickly. And I thought that was an amazing metaphor. And so then when I asked them to come in together, I asked them to actually have the experience of holding each other. You know, that exercise we do sometimes in graduate school where you hold somebody and then you kind of um, pull, uh, kind of rest your weight backwards and they hold you up and then you take turns. And what I said to them is I wanted them to find the just right hold for them. And it must have taken 30 minutes for them. The mother sometimes saying, you're hanging on too tight. It's hurting me. Your nails are digging in or the child saying, um, mom, you're letting go too soon. I'm going to fall. And they worked at it and worked at it. And then voila, the just right hold for them. And then I, those were the days where there were Polaroids. So I took a Polaroid picture for each of them, for them to take and to say, you know, with effort, you can find that connection that you both want that maybe feels just right for both of you. And that was the beginning of working with them in, in family therapy. And then we use shortcut language. Like I would say, oh, that hold is too tight right now, or oops, somebody's let go a little bit. And, and so it's using their language and their concepts to advance um, certain uh, therapy goals um, that you might have with them. And so I, I just feel that as clinicians, we have these opportunities and that when you make something concrete and the person can reflect on that concrete image, that again, it's a kind of a going deeper into why that might have been selected because they mm -hmm. may not know, they may not mm -hmm. recognize yet all the different levels at which that symbol has meaning for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are just some examples of, of, of things that then translate into work that you can do directly with people. Yeah. Wow. My brain is feels like it's exploding with so many thoughts of those two examples. I mean, I think the the first thing I'm thinking about in terms of a, a practical thing for clinicians is your timing, and your discipline and your waiting and not, you know, leaping in too soon or interpreting it beyond where your client was, maybe like even in a way that it wasn't right, you know, for them. Right. Um, I just think that is such an important message Absolutely. that we can't just like oh, that's intriguing and latch onto it and like do something with it. And I, I, I think that requires discipline and confidence in the process. Yeah, I remember when I was in art therapy school, we did a lot of paintings and drawings and then we would spend a lot of time looking at them. And I realized very quickly that just because someone has the ability to externalize and create an image doesn't mean that they're quite ready to see it. 
And so a lot of times we would notice things in people's painting, but they never spoke about it or they didn't see it and we couldn't jump ahead of them. And so that, that discipline was was very very much something we were taught to do is to wait, to simply wait, to tolerate the silence, to see what that person's spontaneous response might be, but not to uh, lead the way or to, in essence, cause people to look at things they're not ready to see. You know, if you overfocus on something, that can be just as damaging as ignoring it altogether. Mm. Just recognizing that sometimes that painting will need to be looked at five, six, seven, ten times. And then a person might say, you know, I suddenly noticed something I hadn't noticed before. And when it comes from them spontaneously, it means they're ready to see it. And if it comes from us, sometimes it's jarring to the person, especially if they hear an interpretation that can be. Yes. Really, really jarring and and disconcerting. And it can cause that person to put their guards up again because, you know, they're not really ready to either see that or hear it or feel it. And you have to give it time and you have to wait and you have to be patient. Yes. And from a neuroscience perspective, I think that you would agree, and maybe we'll even talk about this more, but the use of metaphor and symbolism is tapping into implicit memory. Absolutely. And yes. And, and I think that that, you know, everything that we've been learning in neuroscience is that so much is held inside of us in implicit memory. And I guess the way that you were describing that I'm, I'm seeing you know, the implicit memory coming out, but it, and I love this word that one of my mentors, Dr. Steele uses, you know, that this unmetabolized mm-hmm. emotion and experience, I mean, it will metabolize at a certain rate <laughs> that the client is ready for. Exactly. And that's always been one of my big premises in psychotherapy is the client paces him or herself and we have to follow their pace. And then when you have some models where they say, no, actually, you have to go in with an agenda or a curriculum or a protocol and you have to do one, two, three, four, five in sequence. That doesn't quite always fit with the person's experience of needing to pace because I trust them. I trust that they know what they can see or hear or feel at any given time. And remember, all of those memories that are implicit are not necessarily organized. They don't necessarily make sense. They could be fragmented pieces. And so the fragmented piece comes up and the person goes, wow, I have no idea what that is. But maybe I have a funny feeling when I look at it. So I'm not going to look at it right now. But I'm at some point, maybe that person gets ready to see it. So it's really respecting um, that clock, that the internal clock. I mean, with all respect to there are clients who will become, quote, avoidant and don't want to go near anything that hurts them. And so they have to, on some level, start maybe tolerating their um Uh, Yeah, having a tolerance for affect that's uncomfortable. And that's a sort of a parallel treatment process. But anyway, I do think and I agree with the fact that this is right hemisphere of the brain activity that we're asking people to participate in. And so I think the smoothest thing that can happen is that they externalize this work and then the left hemisphere of the brain at some point sort of evaluates it or yes. 
begins to look at it and understand it and sort of unmask some of it. But it's done gradually. That's why my pet peeve when people start doing work of any kind that's expressive is then the therapist says the child starts painting on an easel and the, and the therapist says, so how was your week? How'd you and your mom get along? Did you manage to do that homework thing I asked you to do? And so now they're asking this, this child who's painting to go from right hemisphere to left hemisphere and back and forth and back and forth, which is multitasking. So they really yes. can, can invest in the expressive work and they really can invest in the sort of more cerebral analytical work. And neither of them is fully present. And I just always say to people, you know, tolerate the silence, let people work in silence. There's no reason to be concerned about that. That means they can get deeper into it and they can really begin to have a process with the expressive arts. And the process is really so important. You know, there's content, what they come up with, but the process, how they go about doing things, that's what's really, I think, valuable to the individual. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So another thing that I was uh, thinking about in um, preparing for this is, you know, so many ways that metaphor and symbolism are used, like even if we look at play therapy and, you know, any all the tools, whether it's puppets or, you know, whatever that are being used and sand tray. Um, and then I was also thinking about okay, let, let's think about metaphor and symbolism and how there are archetypes. And you, you, there's just so, it's just so rich, you know, what, what is there? So there's, a, there's like a tool that, that we may use for someone to express. And then there's these ideas of, of um, archetypal things that might be present. And my mind was just going like a fairy tales. So all of these things, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to blurt all this out and let Eliana say something organized. About it. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think we're living in such an exciting time because there's so much creativity out there in the world. Yes. In spite of the fact that there's been, a tremendous amount of stress and angst and all of that, the creativity has not stopped. And so it's wonderful to go online and just hear about what people are doing and all the ideas they're coming up with. But from my point of view, <clears throat> I do think that uh, metaphor allows that individual to become acquainted with themselves on a deeper level. And that that deeper level, the unconscious and allowing the unconscious to come forward. And especially if we're talking about trauma, again, implicit memories and things that, again, may not be organized, may not be understood. Um, but these little parts of a puzzle keep coming forward. And then you go, oh, look, these two little pieces go together here. We don't know what the picture is yet, but we're starting mm. to work on getting a sense of the picture. And I think in, a, in another way, way that, um, you know, we over rely, I think, on verbal communication. Yes. And we just expect that everyone's going to be able to just tell us everything. And that doesn't always go that way. <laughs> Excuse me. Some people are still um, a little bit defended when it comes to language. They sometimes rehearse what they're going to say and not say. And, and the same thing happens sometimes when people do a sand tray and then they get a little nervous and they go, well, I don't want to talk about that part there. I don't understand 
understand it, or I have no clue why I did that. But that's, I always say to people, well, that's great. That's something for you to allow yourself to think about some more or allow yourself to have that uncertainty of not knowing and just see what that brings up for you and to just mm-hmm. kind of stay with it. And, and there's lots of things people say as well. For example, I was working again with a son and a mother that were very estranged and the son had been raised by his grandmother in another country and now has reunited. And at some point, he, the boy said, I just feel like we come from two different worlds and we live in two different worlds. And I thought to myself, wow, that's powerful. You know, that's his sense of the isolation he feels. And I said, you know, that's a really interesting way of putting it. It's like you have your own life experience in your world. And so does your mom. And it's like you you don't know each other's world. You haven't really been visiting each other's world. So I took a piece of poster board and I just cut it down the middle in a wavy line so it would fit together but separate. And I said, Mm. you know, the first step is I'd like you to create just using stickers or colors or words or whatever comes to mind, your world and the most important parts of your world. And mom, you, I want you to do the same. And then I want you to just kind of tell each other about each other's world. And that went beautifully. Just, just, this is the things I used to do. These were important to me. This is how I spent my time. Those kinds of things, even values in his culture versus mother's culture. And then I said, okay, so now you've kind of traveled. You've been visitors to each other's uh, worlds and that's great. Now we have to figure out how we put down a bridge between the mm. two people. Mm-hmm. And then this whole concept of bridging, um, I've used it so much, but just that there are obstacles that show up on a bridge. And also there are steps that can make it easier to get across a bridge. And how do you overcome the obstacles? And at the same time, how do you have sufficient grounding so that you can trust that you can cross that bridge whenever you want. And then that all becomes sort of an art therapy project where people begin to identify where are the obstacles and where are the solid grounding pieces that we can cross over. And that's been a wonderful experience, but that just came from listening to people and and trying to respond to something they were saying. So when I hear cases and people present cases, I'm listening for metaphors. So if we've got an enmeshed family and people, the clinicians describing the enmeshment piece of it, then I will stop and I will say, okay, so we have enmeshment. So probably what we need to do is see if we can devise some ways for them to really spend some time on an individual projective technique and then just simply introduce it to each other. You know, but then if they say, well, they're completely disengaged from each other, then I start thinking, hmm, so what can we do to kind of make that clear? And then you can think about, for example, cutting pieces of construction paper that are different colors. Everyone picks a color and then you begin to make sort of a placemat where they cross each other, these different pieces of construction paper. And then there's a final product of something that's beautiful and all the colors are visible and the family can see, they can retain their individuality, but at the same time, they're in this together. 
Mm. You know, and so doing things that are concrete like that goes a very long way. Um, and it's a language I think that people really begin to understand and trust. But it's something we have to practice because we don't we sometimes shy away from it, from just stopping when somebody says, wow, my my tank is half full, just stopping and saying, oh, so your tank is half full. So what's that like for you right now? Oh, I feel like I'm sluggish and, you know, the wheels aren't turning as fast as I'd like. And then you just stay in that metaphor. And probably one of the things I learned that I've practiced the most is amplifying questions, amplification questions. And that means that when someone says, you know, draws a picture of self as a tree, my interpretation of the tree stays way behind, you know, it's tucked away and I can have an interpretation of that looks like a solid tree or that looks like a this tree or whatever. But then I begin to check in with that client. So tell me about that tree. How long has that tree been there? What's it like to be that tree with the sky overhead? What's it like for the tree to know that the roots are really well inside the grass, as I can see from the drawing that you've made? And you just start asking amplification questions. Mm -hmm. So it's never interpretive, but it's always designed to have them really value what they've done, what they've come up with as a metaphor and get deeper and deeper into it. I think I've said that three times already, but it's allowing themselves to sink into that unconscious uh, communication that's coming forward at that particular time and trusting that it's important to them for whatever reason it might be. And if we jump ahead, I had a, a boy once and he drew a tree. For, I, I said, draw a picture of you. And he drew a tree, a rock and a squirrel behind the rock. Now, yes, my interpretation was, wow, that little squirrel is pretty shy. It's hiding behind this tree, blah, blah, blah. But if I were to say to that child, it looks like you're feeling a little timid today. Now that child has to react to my interpretation and go, no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or he might just say, I don't know, and just stop doing what he's doing. Instead of saying, I see the little tail of the squirrel. What's that little squirrel doing behind that rock? What's it like for the squirrel to have this big rock in front of him? Mm -hmm. If the squirrel were to peek out, what would he see on the other side? And what about the, the tree and the squirrel looking up to the tree? What's it like to have the tree there? And so you just can spend a lot of time, but that takes practice. It, it just doesn't come naturally. Most people want to ask yes, no questions like, um, is the squirrel feeling scared? That would be a yes, no, but it would introduce something the child hasn't said. And maybe they are feeling a little scared, but they don't want you to know that yet. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just something they need to kind of see from their work. So to me, those amplification questions are really where clinicians can go um, to kind of try to see what the person can value in what they're doing and what they can glean from what they do, they're doing. And our interpretations should be way in the background. My, my art therapy supervisor, who was wonderful, Barbara Sobel, she said, imagine you're carrying a basket, put all those interpretations in the basket and just hold it. Don't do anything with it. Don't share them, just notice them. And that was a great lesson for me because it really does allow you to hold all kinds of polarizing ideas too, because I can have an interpretation this way and then go, but it could also mean this and it's okay. It's actually potentially all of those things and that's okay, just hold them. And then it's the person who has the opportunity to really 
get to those conclusions on their own. And they're more valuable, I think, when you arrive at them yourself and you go, wow, I just had this incredible insight. And maybe you thought that five sessions ago, but it's what you said early on, that discipline to be patient and to wait and let them catch up. You know, you don't have to rush ahead of them. Just Mm -hmm. let them be in the moment at the pace that they need to be. And I think metaphors allows that to happen. Sometimes verbal language can be very, very jarring. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you so much for this rich discussion so far. I can't believe I can't believe that 30 minutes has passed. Um, so listeners, I want you to join us again next week for the second part of this interview with Dr. Eliana Gill talking about metaphor and symbolism in our work with clients. So please join us again next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.